Voters both want to be protected, so they're searching for safety. Famous public choice uh, adjacent scholar Aaron Waldolsky wrote a book called this, that they're searching for safety from government. That's a, that's a demand voters often have. Mm -hmm. They're looking for someone to protect them. At the same time, voters also don't like to be told what to do. Those are inherently conflicting positions, and yet they hold them at the same time. And the incentive is for politicians to try to tell them they can have both, when, even in, when the reality is they don't. So all the way through these things, understanding what those motivations are, what people are pushing for, and how they exist within the system is key to being able to explain what's gone on. And then building institutions that limit the ability of people to capture and get what they want at the expense of others is that implication we were talking about earlier. All right, so hi everyone, welcome to Liberty Curious. This is Kate Wand, I'm here with Ryan Yonk, who is the director of the Public Choice and Public Policy Project at the American Institute for Economic Research. Public choice, this is something we don't hear about often, but I guess this was uh, founded by James Buchanan and a bunch of other intellectuals, Eleanor Ostrom. And uh, James Buchanan coined the term politics without romance. So do you want to explain maybe kind of what that is and what it all means? Yeah, so public choice is uh, a sub-discipline in both political science and economics, as well as uh, sociology and anthropology even. It's a fairly wide um, approach to looking at the world that attempts to make sure we're able to apply many of the principles and methodologies and approaches of economics to questions that happen outside of the marketplace. And the core insight that folks like like James Buchanan, like Eleanor Ostrom, Mansur Olson, and a wide variety of others that we can talk a bit about, uh, noticed was that market decisions weren't the only decisions that people were making on a daily basis. And so one of the original uh, names for an early center studying it was the Center for the Study of Non-Market Decision-Making. Uh, again, something <laughs> they clearly let a bunch of academics name, <laughs> but their goal was to look at this and to say, you know, simply because we, we step out of the marketplace and we step into public life or into politics doesn't mean the basic things we know about people go away. And that's really the, the, what Buchanan, I think, meant when he said he was going to look at politics without romance. He was going to look at politics without all of the sort of novel storytelling we do about, about government, about um, how important government is in our lives and step back and say, ah, we can actually study this and attempt to understand it. And there's a set of tools, primarily from economics, but also from others that let us do that in a way that we can understand the world better. And early public choice was not just Jim Buchanan. Uh, it was like people like Ostrom that you mentioned and others uh, who were all working at this same same task, and they would come together to form the discipline that's public choice as well as the organizations that surround it. And this is something that came about in which decade? Yeah, so early public choice actually starts uh, all the way back in the 1940s. Oh. Um, there's discussions going on about market, about non-market decision-making going back at least that far. Uh, and then uh, there is, in the 1950s, um, work starts to being, being done on how do we explain why voters behave the way they do. And there's a sort of 
quintessential public choice style piece called um, An Economic Theory of Democracy. It's written by an economist, Anthony Downs, uh, who would spend most of his career working in transportation economics, but he also worked on these questions of how do voters respond to incentives and how do other players in the political game respond. And Downs applies directly many of the same uh, assumptions we have about people that we do in economics, and namely that people are self-interested, that they will take action to achieve those self-interests. And once we understand both what people's preferences are or what their self-interest is and what it is they want, we can start to predict and understand their behavior far better. And the early roots of public choice come out of that discussion. And there's a whole field that develops around it. And so this would be voters, it would be politicians, bureaucrats, special interest groups... Yeah, all those things will come about after those early papers. So while Downs was writing, I think, one of the quintessential pieces, other folks were writing on the same subject um, at the same time. Uh, people like Jim Buchanan, who was starting out uh, down these same roads, Gordon Tullock, um, uh, William Riker, uh, who will come to be associated with the Rochester School, and a, a large number of others are all addressing those same questions. And what they'll observe is that voters, politicians, special interest groups, even the sort of the sort of most noble folks playing in the public sphere are all still governed by their own self-interest and what they're trying to achieve, and we can study them. They don't mysteriously lose who they are by walking into that field. Right, so this is maybe a, a way of looking at people that, that ordinary people might think when they look at a politician, well, they're there for us, you know, they're, they're public servants, they're there to serve the public good, and, you know, because they have these great intentions, they'll do all of the right things because they're really looking out for us, they're not looking out for themselves, and none of their self-interest comes through in their decision-making. Yeah, I think I think that's the narrative that politicians, in particular, uh, like to like to uh, push forward. The idea that that they're there in the public interest. Now, if you ask people for very long what they think of politicians, uh, they don't tend to have a very high opinion of them because they naturally observe that they're not just there to do good. People see it pretty clearly. Uh, if you poll people about their general opinion on politicians, they, they score very low. Mm. If you ask them about particular politicians, their own elected officials, they tend to score higher. But people natively see these things. And yet the narrative and discussion, when we go to analyze this stuff, often forgets all the lessons we've learned as voters every time we're disappointed by an elected official that told us one thing and then did something else. And public choice basically says, never forget those lessons that you've learned. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so what about on the voter side? Like what have you found through the study of public choice? How do people act as voters? Yeah, so uh, one of the key things that public choice uh, helped us understand about voters um, was that voters often have little information. Uh, they, it's costly to get fully informed. And because they have little information, they're often making decisions on margins that aren't simply what's the best policy or even what's best for me. Instead, they're voting on emotive responses, how they respond to politicians. They're voting based on being part of a team. So they have a party affiliation that looks and acts a lot like uh, 
like team sports in many ways. Uh, we, we have a team and we support that team often no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that's what tends to be driving people isn't the cost benefit. It's not, is this policy going to be good for me or good for society? It's something else that drives people to vote. And one of the th- key things that public choice, I think, helped uh, both economics and political science as a discipline understand is that when you look at whether or not any individual voter is likely to change the outcome of the election, mathematically, we know they're not. As soon as you get to an election of any size, the probability that your vote's going to be the one that changes the outcome of the election almost becomes zero, even in, some of the, even in sort of very modestly sized elections. You get to 100 or 200 people voting, and the probability that your vote's the marginal one that makes the, makes the difference is low. And so public choice actually says, if that's how people were thinking about their votes, we shouldn't see them vote, but they still turn out to vote. So for public choice, the question isn't why so few people vote, it's why does anyone vote? And the lessons public choice helped, helped us learn was that people vote for lots of reasons. Wow, that, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me because you think about that, like let's say if you want to vote for a party that is not the most popular team, right? Like it's the underdog, yeah. maybe the Libertarian Party or something like that, right? Like do those people have a different opinion on, on how much their vote counts compared with people who take a, more of a kind of collective view of voting and think this is my team, like, and it's a bigger team that's going to win. Does that, does, is there a spectrum of how this affects people across voting pieces? Yeah, I I think that's definitely going on. Um, So if you ask most libertarians, uh, like, that belong to the Libertarian Party, uh, most of them acknowledge Libertarian Party's never going to win a national election, at least not in anybody who's currently alive's lifetime, unless something <laughs> radical happens. And yet, they're devotees. There are, there are long-term active supporters of the Libertarian Party that vote for the, for the LP consistently. But they're voting for it for expressive reasons. They're getting something else out of it than the, the, just the policy that they want, they want implemented. Because voting isn't going to be the way they get those things. Right. So they're not just voting based on what they think the outcome will be. It's actually part of an identity thing as well. Yeah. And, and this, is, this, I think, is what, what makes public choice such a powerful understanding. Because it says it's not just about whether or not they're going to win elections. It's not just about whether or not they should vote. People are motivated by a multitude of different things. And understanding what motivates them what payoff they're getting from that process lets us understand their behavior a lot better. And early public choice was focused very, very heavily in this direction of understanding the voters. And what about if we flip over to politicians and bureaucrats? Are they the same kinds of incentives? Yeah, well, they're the same kind of incentives, but they're not the same incentives. And public choice set up early on, so they they do lots of voting models, try to explain why people vote or how elections come out. And then pretty quickly, people start to ask the questions, well, voters aren't the only folks that have that are motivated by a variety of things. So too are politicians, so too are elected officials and bureaucrats. And so public choice started to tackle those things very early. And this is much of the work of Buchanan and Tulloch and others that start to say all the parts of the political process are 
are, can be better understood if we start to apply these basic assumptions of public choice. And as you noted, Buchanan said, take the romance out of it. Look at it from an approach where we can actually say, what's motivating people? Why are they taking these actions? What are they getting from it? And remembering that people don't magically become good simply because they enter government. Right. And are there certain times in history where, like you can give an example that, let's say the public good does align more closely with what politicians are actually doing? Or is this always something that's kind of far removed? Well, I don't, I, I don't know what the public good is, Kate. This is one of the things that has uh, stymied um, students of politics, students of economics, and especially students of public policy. Because one of the things that, as, you, as we started this interview, the project here at AIER is about public choice and public policy. And one of the lessons that we, we learn very quickly as we start to study politics is not everybody agrees on what the public good is, and figuring out even what a majority believes the public good is is extremely difficult because there are many conceptions of it. But what we can understand is how individuals relate to their own self-interest and express that self-interest through the political process. And by understanding that, we reveal something about what people expect and want from government. And so while I wouldn't call that the public good, we are learning something empirically about what people desire and want from government. So yeah. politicians getting to the public good, I don't know what the public good is, and I'd be skeptical that politicians could figure it out, even if I could. Well, I'm really glad that you said that, Ryan, because I don't believe in the public good, personally. I mean, it's um, to me, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that, that you can actually calculate that. And I, I also wonder kind of where does that term come from, the public good? Like, it gets my spider senses tingling. I don't know if you know about the origins of it. <laughs> yeah. So, so public goods, uh, so there are two parts to the public goods problem. One is there's a very technical economics definition of what public goods are. Um, but that's not what anybody means when we talk about public good in the political sense. What we're meaning is, uh, what we tend to mean in, when we talk about it in politics or political economy is we're much more focused on uh, a Rousseauian concept. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a French philosopher who appealed to this notion that there was some underlying truth that he called the public good that we should be aspiring to. And uh, we tend to think of it in that way. Economists have that very technical definition that talks about the properties of some particular good, but that's not what we mean when we talk about the public good in the political sense. And almost always politicians are appealing to this notion of the public good, what it is the public needs or should want. And Rousseau, wasn't he kind of, was he from the French Revolution period? Was that? So, so French is writing around, um, Rousseau is writing right around that period. Uh, and that was a period of, of intellectual flux, lots of intellectual inquiry. And the Rousseauian notion, uh, in part, was, was pushing forward many of those same ideas about, is there a way to discover what is the underlying good? Um, it was in part responsive to uh, generations of religious of religion that had claimed to provide that answer. Rousseau was a secular version of that in many ways, but uh, 
but he claimed it existed and you could find it. And for most politicians, we've been on a journey ever since uh, claiming that they that somehow because they were elected, they have access to what that public good is. And public choice says, what we can, we, we can't discover the public good, but what we can do is understand what motivates people and how all the different parts come together and explain why we get the sort of outcomes we do. Because public choice is less interested in that question of what is the right answer and understanding how we arrived at the sort of answers we do and why the world looks the way it does. So uh, Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, I'm just reading here from a paper, an article uh, called, Is It Time to End the Filibuster? Which is on AIR's sure. site. Um, and he says that, it says he contributed to this literature in 1962 with landmark work, The Calculus of Consent. So here they talk about um, voting a little bit and decision and external costs. And I thought that there was really interesting uh, to look at that uh, and, and specifically when you're talking about public good and the majority good and, you know, can, yeah. you, can you dive a little bit into that and clear that yeah, up? Yeah, so, so uh, Tolik and Buchanan in, in the Calculus of Consent address these questions head on. What they're trying to figure out is how do we identify the, both the way in which decisions are made, primarily by government, and what does, what does it mean to have consented to participate? And their exploration of those questions are sort of public choice at its most sort of intellectual, where you're asking the questions directly about what does it mean? What are the motivations? How does the process interact with the people involved in the process? And what pushes them to make those decisions? Together, they are very skeptical of the ability of government to arrive at the public good. In fact, I think both of them would say that's not possible and would be uh, deeply skeptical of the idea that it exists at all. But what they do are able to do is walk us through the process and the motivations that all the players have for why decisions get made the way they do. And so for those that want to pick up and read the Calculus of Consent, you go in and you you start that that book by thinking about why does why do politicians, why does government make the decisions they do, and how do I interact as, with it as a person? And it's amazing the sort of insights that you'll get simply from reading it and then thinking about the world you're observing around you. And that's one of the magic pieces of public choice is it lets folks start to think about government from a perspective that isn't just the civics lesson we got in fourth grade, but instead it is a process that involves people and people, and in that process, they're trying to accomplish goals. Sometimes we agree with those goals, oftentimes we disagree, but we can identify what they're trying to do and the actions they're taking and how the system, the rules, influence what actions they take to try to achieve those goals. So one thing that I found in this paper particularly relating to what you're saying here is talking about, let's say, if it's an issue that's a more important issue, like should you have, uh, you know, the kind of restrictions that we've been seeing in the last couple of years versus should we... Uh, dedicate a day to pancakes, like a national pancake day. And they say like, well, if it's yeah. an issue that's that's going to be less important, you have more people voting and then you have uh, basically just a simple majority vote, then that will be something that might make more sense. But when it comes to uh, policies that really affect people's lives and sometimes in adverse ways, there are different ways to vote for that. And maybe you want to have a super majority. 
Yeah, so this go this comes into what are the implications that public choice analysis has. So from public choice, uh, Tulloch and Buchanan in particular started to build what they called constitutional political economy, deeply rooted in the public choice understanding of the world, and then suggesting that given the problems that we see when we start to study the world through the public choice lens, correcting for some of the, the worst parts of that, the most opportunity for individuals to manipulate the system to get what they want at the expense of others, we may want to start to look at, are there different rules that reduce the potential for those things to happen? And that in many ways is what we're trying to do at the Public Choice and Public Policy Project is ask those questions and say, is there a better way to construct public policy? So you brought up, for example, the, the recent pandemic restrictions. Yeah. So um, I've been working for the last year with a group of public choice folks that have asked the question, how does the pandemic interact with personal liberty? And what should be, what should be the principles government operates on in the light of a pandemic? And those studies um, are coming together in a book that'll be out a little bit later this year, but we, we addressed everything from presidential action through um, whether or not public health as a discipline was equipped to make political decisions, which many of these things were, to discussions about whether or not our understanding of science and public policy makes good sense. Because it turns out all those players that I just described have goals they're attempting to achieve, and they attempt to use the rules of the game to achieve their preferred outcome, often at the expense of others. And so understanding that and then building better policy is one of the things public choice can help us do. And so what are kind of, you know, if we, if we go back to this example, because it's the example that we're all most familiar with that, you know, has affected people all over. Um, if we come back to looking at those kinds of restrictions, um, what do you think that the biggest incentives for, let's say if we look at just the president, let's take that as an example. What do you think were, let's say Trump, when he first said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna do warp speed, we're gonna shut everything down. Like what kind of incentives might he have had to do that kind of thing, just as an example? Well, so, I, I mean, I think the examples were, I think the example of the president in the pandemic is one of the most, one of the easiest illustrations of public choice. So you have a threat that emerges. Uh, there are open questions about both the, in the beginning, both the seriousness and how likely it is to affect the United States. And so presidents have incentives. The primary incentive of the president is to, is for re-election. That's politicians, one of their primary uh, motivations is they want to continue to be elected. Uh, presidents in their first term are looking at re-election. And so one of the things I think that um, popped up was, okay, so if you're viewed as doing nothing about it and it turns out to be something terrible and you've done nothing, you'll, get, you'll likely get blamed. And so there's a bias to do something in response to potential crises. Uh, and that is one of the lessons I think we learned from a study done by James Harrigan and Joanne Harrigan on presidential rhetoric, is they have this strong tendency to want to do something. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they respond to that. Um, on top of that, there's also... Uh, for presidents, there's also national security questions. So there is actual, I mean, politicians are not simply unfeeling 
um, entirely amoral or immoral individuals. They enter politics for a reason. Oftentimes those reasons include wanting to do what they think are good things. And so they're motivated to try to get it right from that perspective. And so they may listen to uh, what they think is the best evidence. Mm -hmm. But they're facing all of these different competing things. So they want to be viewed as doing something. They don't want to be viewed as getting it wrong. Uh, and they're all, they're looking towards both their popularity and their reelection. Um, so for example, Trump was looking at reelection during the pandemic. And so he was wanting to be able to do something because there was a clamor from the American public in the beginning of the pandemic that there was fear, there was uncertainty, and there was a, a push to want something done. Mm. Now, that flipped partway through the pandemic, and the risk changed for the president that people were tired of the, of the sort of lockdowns and those things, those policies. Yeah. And so you watched the president's approach change as well, right in real time, yeah. as he was responding to what uh, his incentives were. Now, at the same time, there's a second character in all of this that I think is worth talking about. Because he's in the background this whole time, and that is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, because he ha he's a bureaucrat, um, works in the civil service as head of the NIH. His incentives are entirely different than the president's. He wants to remain, number one, in charge of the NIH, so mm -hmm. he has pressure coming in on the political side to do something, but he also wants his field, which is public health and epidemiology, to be relevant and important and engage in the discussion, and so his incentive is to make sure that those questions are at the center of every policy discussion. Yes. And for all my disagreements with what he wanted, he was immensely successful at using the incentives he faced and the system to achieve his ends. And as a result, we see public health right in the middle of every discussion today. Yeah. Now that's problematic because it's pushed other things that people care about out. And again, that's part of what public choice says is you have to understand all the implications going on because simply because we declare something to be, we must do it because of of public health, for example, doesn't mean there aren't other considerations. Economic considerations, for example, took a back seat as public health became ascendant, and we saw significant economic effects to many of the policies. And health and considerations then, as well. And, and health considerations, right. so, all those things. Oddly enough. <laughs> I mean, all those things come from different perspectives, and so public choice looks at this and says, we have to understand the players involved and what their motivations are, as well as the rules that they're operating in. Yeah. And that's the study of public choice. Yeah, that clears it up a lot for me. So it's kind of funny because, you know, you were saying politicians always want to do something. They never want to do nothing. But, you, you know, you tend to think that sometimes if they did nothing, we would be better off. But I think that um, they may be on the opposite end of voters here because it seems to me that often voters want to do nothing and they want somebody to do something for them. And so that's why this kind of works well together. And maybe that's just a, a, a you know, a black and white way of looking at it, but I think there might yeah. be something in there. Yeah, so, so voters are, are these incredibly fickle beasts and it, and it turns out they're incredibly fickle because they're just you and I, Kate. Yeah. Um, we, we over time have a, a whole host of different opinions and we move around on any given day on exactly what we think. Um, I like to consider myself a pretty doctrinaire libertarian type. And even for me, 
moving around on these questions happens a lot. And so it's not as though it's as simple as saying voters don't want to do, well, voters were on one side, politicians were on the other. No, they're locked into an interplay together where they're all attempting to achieve their desires. And in doing so, we have to understand what the implications of those are and whether or not they're able to use the rules of the game to achieve what they want at the expense of someone else. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you think are the things that um, in, in this period that we've seen go by, what have you seen kind of voters being incentivized to do? So, so voters have had two competing sets of incentives. Voters both want to be protected, so they're searching for safety. Famous public choice uh, adjacent scholar Aaron Waldowski wrote a book called this, that they're searching for safety from government. That's a, that's a demand voters often have. Mm -hmm. They're looking for someone to protect them. At the same time, voters also don't like to be told what to do. Those are inherently conflicting positions, and yet they hold them at the same time. And the incentive is for politicians to try to tell them they can have both, when, even in, when the reality is they don't. So all the way through these things, understanding what those motivations are, what people are pushing for, and how they exist within the system is key to being able to explain what's gone on. And then building institutions that limit the ability of people to capture and get what they want at the expense of others is that implication we were talking about earlier from uh, Buchanan and Tolick that gives us a way to think about the world that adjusts our policy. Because if we leave everything open, we know that politicians, bureaucrats, special interests, and voters will all want everything all at once. And that works out well for nobody. <laughs> well, I think that this is a really good uh, introductory explanation of public choice. Um, and, and definitely enlightening for me, and I'm sure for our viewers as well. So what would you suggest for people who want to learn more about public choice? Where can yeah, they go? So there are, two, there are two great places to go. One is to visit AIER's website. Uh, if, you, if, you click on, if you go look at our articles and click on the tag public choice and public policy, you'll see lots of articles written by folks working in this tradition. And then there are two things I would suggest people read. The first is, Politics Without Romance that you referenced earlier. Uh, it's one of the great introductions to what public choice is. Uh, lays it out very clearly from, from Jim Buchanan. And the second thing that I would encourage them to do is to think through, to read any piece of news from the day and think about why, people, why the people involved are doing what they do. Ask the basic public choice question. Because some of the best ways to learn it are to actually go out into the world and ask those hard questions. Go to a local city council meeting and wonder why the city council people are, act are doing the things they're doing. Watch the news and ask the question why this elected official is saying X. Yeah. Those sorts of things will be illustrative. But more than anything else, be a thinking and engaged citizen and remember that simply because we walk into the world of politics doesn't mean we suddenly became, become the best people in the world. We're still who we are when, when we were outside of the political world. Well, you know, there's, there's actually one more thing that I'd like to ask you now because that made me think about something else. So, you know, is there any hope 
for people in terms of being able to actually change things? Is it something that needs to happen through culture or how can people go about creating change? So this is, this is the other great thing about public choice, is public choice sometimes gets presented as all doom and gloom. <laughs> and it can be pretty gloomy looking. But it also means that once we understand these things, we can start to start to modify the rules to limit the sphere of what government can do. Because one of the single best solutions to public choice problems that emerge is limiting the scope that government has to be able to act in our daily lives. And so I, I, do, I see lots of hope um, on the horizon that as people think about these things, and hopefully they'll listen and then go be skeptical about elected officials after perhaps hearing, hearing me talk about this <laughs> and wonder, should we give them all this space to work in or should we be more limiting? And I think the hope really lies in the potential to limit the sphere of government. I'm not an, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist who would say we should smash the state tomorrow. Yeah. I look at it and say, how can we limit what government is both allowed and expected to do, given we know there are lots of these public choice problems that exist. Excellent. Well, I think that that's a great way to wrap it up, unless you have anything else that you'd like to add, Ryan? Nope, I think I'm good. Thank you for joining me at Liberty Curious. And to read more about public choice and public policy, you can visit AIER.org. <laughs>